Well, if you have your Bible, turn with me to Genesis chapter 44. Genesis chapter 44. For those of you who are visiting with us today, as I've already mentioned, we have been working our way through a series looking at the life of Joseph, the son of Jacob from the book of Genesis. And today, we've arrived at what I would consider to be probably the climax of this story. This is, uh, if we were talking like a boxing match or, or UFC, this is the main event, right? You can hear the announcer getting you ready, right? Ladies and gentlemen, right? I won't do it. But this is the main event. Only today, instead of two warriors clashing inside of a ring, we have 12 brothers. I grew up watching WWF, and we would call that a battle royale, right? You guys remember those? Those were amazing. So battle royale. But instead of seeing 12 brothers going at it in a ring and fighting, we're going to see brothers reuniting and reconciling. This isn't a story of punches thrown. This is a story that has hugging and kissing and and, and weeping and reconciliation. And I know that some of you are thinking that I would rather see Joseph get in the ring and duke it out with his brothers. This sounds awfully sappy, right? But it's good. It's a good sappy. See, our flesh, our flesh loves the idea of getting back, right? And getting even. We, we want to get revenge on those who have hurt us. But the Bible says, the Bible says that vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, right? That's what the Bible says. God says, I will repay. It's not up to you to get back at those who have hurt you. And I love what it says in Proverbs chapter 19. Proverbs 19, 11, the Bible says, good sense makes one slow to anger. Do you know that God is slow to anger? Yeah. And good sense makes us slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. The Bible says that it is a glorious thing to extend forgiveness to those who have wronged us. It's a good thing to to pursue reconciliation instead of retaliation. And in our study today, we're going to see how God used Joseph as an instrument of, of mercy as an instrument of grace, forgiveness, and he used Joseph to pursue reconciliation and restoration of of a relationship where he had been hurt so, so deeply. And my prayer is that as we consider Joseph's example, that we would be encouraged to extend that same type of forgiveness to those who have wronged us that we too would become ministers of mercy, grace, and reconciliation, allowing God to even prepare our hearts for the possibility of restoration in, in those relationships. And you know, as I think about the people who might be here this morning, I recognize that there's really a, a couple of ways this could be applied in your life. Maybe you're here and maybe you are somebody who needs to pursue forgiveness from someone that you've wronged. Maybe you are somebody who needs to pursue forgiveness from God. Maybe you've never received his forgiveness. And so that's the first thing that you need to do. Or maybe you're somebody here who has been wronged, right? You've been wounded by somebody that you loved, somebody that you cared about, right? And so maybe today, maybe, just maybe, you hear the story of Joseph and you say, if God can heal what was broken between Joseph and his brothers, then God can heal my relationship as well. Amen? It is possible. There is nothing, nothing that he can't do. Impossible doesn't exist in God's vocabulary, does it? Everything is possible. Now, when we left off a couple of weeks ago, you may remember that Joseph's brothers, they had returned to Egypt, and they were there, uh, you know, back there to buy grain. And this time, they've brought with them their youngest brother, Benjamin, just as Joseph had told them to. And although they were, they were initially terrified, remember? They were very nervous about what was going to happen. And they get there, and he's like, you're going to go have lunch at his house, and they're freaking out, right? They're totally terrified. But 
It doesn't take long as the story develops and we find Joseph's brothers are, are, are now experiencing relief because they are in the home of, of this powerful man from Egypt, Zaphnath Paneah, the, the second most powerful man in all of Egypt, and they're having a feast at his table. Pretty amazing, right? And so they're filled with relief, right? They're hanging out there, but they still don't realize, they still don't realize that this powerful man is actually their brother, Joseph, the very same brother that they had sold away as a slave 22 years earlier. Joseph knows it. We know it as the audience reading the story, but his brothers are clueless to this fact. And that's how things came to an end at the end of chapter 43. They're sitting at the table, they're eating and they're drinking, they're having a great time with Joseph. And now that's where we pick up chapter 44 beginning in verse one. And by the way, we're gonna try to get through all of chapter 44 and the first 15 verses of chapter 45. So I figure if I do two minutes per verse, that's a long time. So I won't, we'll go much faster than that. Genesis chapter 44, verse one. Then he commanded the steward of his house, fill the men's sacks with food as much as they can carry and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack. And put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest with his money for the grain. And he did as Joseph told him. Now, as we've been working our way through this story, we have seen Joseph putting his brothers through a series of of tests. He's trying to determine whether or not his brothers have truly changed. Are they still the same jealous and hateful men that had sold him away 22 years earlier, or had they changed? So first, Joseph tested their loyalty. During their first trip to Egypt, Joseph kept Simeon as a prisoner. And and this was a test to see if they would come back to retrieve their brother, or if they would abandon him in the same way that they had with Joseph. And although it took a little while, mostly because of their dad, right? They did pass the test. They came back. They returned, and they brought Benjamin with them. So Joseph then tested them a second time, and we saw that the last time. This time, it was a test of their jealousy. When the meal was served in Joseph's home, do you remember what Joseph did? Joseph served all his brothers, but to his youngest brother, Benjamin, He gave him five times as much as the other brothers. And this was a test to see, would they be okay with that? Or would the the jealousy that they had displayed years before when Joseph was favored would rear its ugly head again as Benjamin was being favored? But once again, they passed the test, didn't they? They, they They weren't dismayed by the fact that Benjamin was being favored over them. So while they're all sitting at the table and they're enjoying this meal and they're like, wow, this is so good. And, and we're, not, we're not considered spies anymore. Simeon's been released from prison. This Joseph guy seems to really like our brother Benjamin. He gave him five times as much as the rest of us. Life is so good, right? They're thinking life is great. Tomorrow we're going to get on a journey. We're going to go home and we're going to have grain. It's just so great. Life is good. But what they don't realize is as they're thinking all of these things, Joseph is thinking, yeah, there's still one more test. I've got one more test for these guys. We'll call this their their final exam, right? This is the final. So Joseph tells his steward to put their money back in their bags, just like last time, right? It's deja vu. They're doing this all over again. But this time, he also tells his steward to hide a special silver cup inside of Benjamin's bag. He's setting Benjamin up, isn't he? He's going to make it look like Benjamin stole this cup. Now, if you're like me, you read that and you're like, wait a minute. I thought Joseph was a good guy. Like, what is it? This is kind of deceptive, don't you think? This, is, this feels a little deceptive. But as we're reading the story, you, you have to keep reminding yourself that this is a test. Joseph isn't going to punish Benjamin for stealing a cup that he knows he didn't steal, right? 
But he's testing his brothers. He's testing Benjamin. He's testing all of them to see what they're going to do. How are they going to respond to this test? Verse 3. As soon as the morning was light, the men were sent away with their donkeys. We know how much they love their donkeys, right? We, we saw that last time. And they had gone only a short distance from the city. Now Joseph said to his steward, up, follow after the men. And when you overtake them, say to them, why have you repaid evil for good? Is it not from this that my Lord drinks and by this that he practices divination? You have done evil in doing this. And when he overtook them, he spoke to them these words. So the next morning, Joseph's brothers, they're, they're getting an early start. They're excited to get home to, to see their father and to bring grain. And uh, what probably began as a pretty joyful morning, you know, they're probably talking about the meal, like, I've never had food like that. That was amazing. That's what I'd be talking about. So <laughs> my wife and I, we, we joke a lot lately about this, but she's like, seriously, Chris, wherever we go, it's the food. You know, you are just so into the food, and it's true, whether it's Mexico or Israel or I don't care if it's Augusta or Portland or Chicago, it's what do they have for food, you know? Well, Joseph's brothers, they've just had an incredible feast, maybe unlike anything they've ever had. So they're riding home like, oh, it's just life is so good. And then they look up in the distance, and what do they see? But they see the dust of horses coming at them rather rapidly. They're being hunted down by Joseph Stewart and probably some others, and, and they're coming, and, and they're coming quickly, and then they overtake them, and when they get there, Joseph Stewart is not smiling. They were all laughing and joyful the night before, but now he's serious, he's angry, and he's got words for these guys. So he gets there, and he's like, what, what, what were you thinking? Why would you do this? Why would you repay evil for good. My master was so, so good to you. He gave you an abundant feast, and you did, this, you did this. You go out and steal his cup, the cup that he uses for divination. Now, just a side note about the cup for divination. The text says here that Joseph's steward is saying that this is the cup that my master uses for divination, and it's really not clear from the text and from the rest of the story, whether or not Joseph actually practiced divination using this cup or whether this is all part of the act. Because certainly there were people in Egypt who practiced divination. So it would make sense to be part of the story that they're developing and how Joseph knew that the cup was stolen. But it's also possible that it's just part of the act, right? That, that this is part of the story. In, in the same way... Um, well, actually, are you familiar with the story in the book of Acts? The story in the book of Acts where they're going to choose the apostle to replace um, uh, Judas, right? And what did, the, what did the disciples do? They cast lots. Remember that story? So I would say this. If Joseph did use a cup for divination, what would make Joseph different than the others in the world who are practicing divination is Joseph would have been seeking the heart and the will and the plans of God using these tools, just like the apostles used lots to determine the will of God for replacing the apostle. So if that's how he used it, or if he, if he used it at all, that is how he would have used it. But Joseph's steward accuses them of stealing this special cup. Verse seven, and they said to him, why does my Lord speak such words as these? Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. Behold, the money that we found in the mouths of our sacks, we brought back to you from the land of Canaan. How then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? Whichever of your servants is found with it shall die, and we also will be my Lord's servants. Joseph's brothers are completely shocked by this accusation. They're like, what are you, what are you talking about? What are you talking about? Why would we do such a thing? Why would, we, why would we steal the cup? We brought back the money. We're not thieves. Why would we do this? It doesn't even make sense. And they're so confident. They're so confident of their innocence. They take their words a little too far, don't they? They're so confident of their innocence that they quickly blurt out something really, really foolish. They said, and if anyone has the silver cup, if any of us, any of, any of the 11, if we have the silver cup, 
You can kill him. Kill him. And the rest of us will be your slaves. Wow. Now, this was clearly a foolish thing for them to say, right? I mean, think about it. They just got done admitting the fact that we didn't take the money the last time. Somebody snuck the money back in their bags the first time. And they're willing to risk one of their brother's lives and commit to slavery if anything like this is found in their, in their bag this time. That was a very foolish thing for them to say. But I will say this. It does demonstrate just how much they believed in each other right? I mean, because it's one thing. It's one thing if they said, if you find that cup in any of our bags, you can kill that person. If one of my brothers has stolen from you, they deserve to die. Well, it's one thing to put somebody else's neck on the line, right? But it's something totally different to say. And not only that, I am so convinced that none of my brothers would have done this, that if you find it in one of their bags, I will be your slave for the rest of my life. Wow. Does this sound like the same 11 men that we know from earlier, or at least the 10 older ones that we knew from earlier in the story? They believe in each other. They trust each other. Verse 10, he said, let it be as you say. He who is found with it shall be my servant, and the rest of you shall be innocent. Actually, that's not exactly what they said, is it? Not exactly. But Joseph's steward is a little bit more reasonable than these, these men are, Right? He says, no, 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 this is what's going to happen. Only the person who has the cup will end up being a slave. Verse 11, then each man quickly lowered his sack to the ground. They're confident, right? And each man opened his sack and he searched, beginning with the eldest and ending with the youngest. Again, kind of fascinating how he knows, right? We talked about that last time. And the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Then they tore their clothes and every man loaded his donkey and they returned to the city. Now, I want you to keep in mind that Joseph's steward knows where the cup is, right? I mean, he's the one that put it there. He put the cup in Benjamin's bag, but he's going through this whole dramatic thing, right? Where let's start with the oldest and make it really suspenseful as we work our way down. And so they get to like 9, 10, 11 bags, and these guys are like, told you. Told you. You're not going to find it. We're honest men. There's no way. And then they get to Benjamin's bag. And this is the absolute worst case scenario, right? Because the only real important person to bring back to Canaan is Benjamin. The text says, that when the, uh, when the cup was found in Benjamin's bag, that they tore their clothes. They tore their clothes. This was a display of grief and mourning that would be reserved for when someone died. This was a, a total display of like, this is like a death in our family. You, you can't do this to us. And so every single one of them loaded up their donkeys and they all returned to the city. Joseph's brothers did not turn their back on Benjamin. The steward said, only the person who has the cup will become a slave. So they could have gone. They could have left, right? They could have said, well, Benjamin, tough luck, you dummy. Why'd you steal the cup, right? Doesn't seem like they believed that he did steal the cup. They believed in Benjamin. And so they loaded up their donkeys and all of them go back to Joseph's House. Verse 14, when Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there. Of course he was. He was waiting for them. He knew it was going to happen. And they fell before him to the ground. Once again, this is a fulfillment of Joseph's dreams. Remember his dreams? All of his brothers bowing before him. And Joseph said to them, what deed is this that you have done? Do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? He says, did you really think that you could get away with this? Did you really think you could pull it off? I got to say, it's just my opinion, but I think that Joseph and his steward should be nominated for an Oscar, don't you think? <laughs> I mean, because they know the truth. They know the truth, and they are doing an amazing job acting. If it, if it doesn't work out working for Pharaoh, 
You know, Joseph has a, has a career in Hollywood. But uh, yeah, he knows they're innocent. He knows what they've done, but he goes on and, he, and he, he presents this as, I'm angry, what do you think you were doing? And it said, these guys were shaking. They were nervous, they were terrified. What's gonna happen to Benjamin? What's gonna happen to us? And at this point, Judah speaks up. And we talked about the fact that Judah has become a leader amongst his brothers. And as we make our way through the rest of this chapter, the rest of chapter 44, I really want you to pay attention. Pay attention to the, the humility, the care, the concern that Ju- uh, Judah has, um, both for Benjamin, but also for his father. Uh, his father, you remember his dad, right? Jacob, the one who hasn't treated his older son so well. Pay attention to how Judah thinks about his father now. Verse 16, and Judah said, what shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also in whose hand the cup has been found. But he said, this is Joseph, far be it from me that I should do so. Only the man in whose hand the cup has found, was found shall be my servant. But as for you, go up in peace to your father. Judah says, what what can we say? What could we possibly say that would convince you that we are innocent, that would clear our names? And then Judah says something that is, is huge. He says, God has found out the guilt of your servants. God has uncovered our guilt. Now, this is interesting. This is interesting because the fact of the matter is Joseph's brothers are completely innocent, right, of stealing this cup. They know they're innocent. They know that they didn't steal this cup, but he doesn't defend that, does he? He's not saying, no, 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 no. We didn't steal the cup. We didn't say, no, I promise none of us took the cup. He doesn't say that. He says, God has uncovered our guilt. What guilt is Judah talking about here? He's talking about the guilt for what they had done to their brother Joseph 22 years earlier. A secret that they've been trying to keep uh, under undercover for 22 years. They say, God has uncovered our guilt. You see, Judah's bro- uh, Joseph's brothers, were, they were innocent of stealing a cup, but these men were far from innocent, were they? they, they, they these, these were guilty men. Men who've been carrying the weight of their sin for 22 years. And so Judah says, what can we say? We're guilty. We are guilty men. We're getting what we deserve. We're getting what we deserve. They've done everything in their power to conceal this, haven't they? What they really needed was to come clean. Brothers and sisters, it's the same for us. Our greatest need, our greatest need is to experience the forgiveness that comes from God. We need to be forgiven. It's the greatest need that any person has, but it's a need that will only be fulfilled when we begin with confession. We need to confess our guilt, our need for forgiveness. Like Judah, we must admit that we are guilty And praise God, the Bible tells us that when we turn to Jesus, 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so Judah says, he says, look, we are totally guilty. Our sins have finally caught up with us. We are getting what we deserve. So we're all gonna stay here in Egypt as your slaves. Judah's probably thinking something like this. He's probably thinking, you know what? This is what we had coming to us. We sold our brother as a slave. It's only fitting that now we also become slaves. But Joseph says, no. That's not how it's gonna work. The only one who's gonna be staying here with me in Egypt is the one who stole the cup. It's gonna be Benjamin, your youngest brother. The rest of you are gonna go home to your father. Now, again, at this point, they could have said, all right, hey, we tried, right? We tried. We, we literally, we came back to Egypt. We tried to, to get Benjamin free, but 
The guy's not willing to let him go, so good luck, Benjamin. Good luck. But no. At this point, Judah puts all of his cards on the table. Verse 18, then Judah went up to him. So they maybe they're at a distance, right? They're kind of back and they're, they're bowed down. Judah gets up and he approaches Joseph and he comes a little closer and he says, oh, my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ears and let not your anger burn against your servant for you are like Pharaoh himself. Judah says, listen, I, I don't mean to be rude. I really don't, and I really don't want to die, okay? But would you just please listen? I just got a few more things to say. Could you please just hear me out? Verse 19, Judah continued. He said, my Lord, talking about Joseph, my Lord asked his servant saying, have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, we have a father, an old man and a young brother, the child of his old age. His brother is dead. Who's he talking about? Joseph. And he alone is left of his mother's children, and his father loves him. Now, I want you to, again, keep in mind that Judah does not realize that he's talking to Joseph, right? But Joseph knows, and he says, our father had two sons with the woman that he truly loved, right? Rachel. And one of them is already dead, and Benjamin here, he, he, he's the other, and our father loves him so much. Verse 21, then you said to your servants, bring him, Benjamin, down to me that I may set my eyes on him. And we said to my Lord, the boy cannot leave his father for if he should leave his father, his father would die. Then you said to your servants, unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you will not see my face again. And when we went back to your servant, my father, we told him the words of my Lord. And when our father said, go again, buy us a little food, we said, we cannot go down. If our youngest brother goes with us, then we'll go down. For we cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Judah says, listen, like, our father loves this boy so much, and he, and he did not want to let Benjamin come down here to Egypt, but you gave us no choice. You said, if, I don't bring, if we don't bring Benjamin, then we don't get to see your face, and if we don't see your face, we don't get grain, and if we don't get grain, we starve. We were starving, so my father gave in. He had to let him go to come with us. In verse 27, he said, then... Your servant, my father, said to us, you know that my wife bore me two sons. One left me, and I said, surely he has been torn to pieces, and I've never seen him since. If you take this one also from me and harm happens to him, you will bring down my gray hairs in evil to Sheol, to the grave. Can you imagine? Can you imagine how Joseph must have felt hearing these words? These are the words of his father, the one who loved him so much. He hadn't seen him for 22 years, and he's hearing now these words from, from Judah about how his father had grieved over the loss of Joseph. These were words which convey, conveyed both the, the great love and the great pain that Jacob had suffered. And Judah says, please, Please, you've got to understand, our father cannot bear the pain of losing Benjamin as well. He said he, can't, he won't survive. Verse 30, now therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, then as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die. And your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. For your servant, I, Judah, I became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, if I do not bring him back to you, then I will bear the blame before my father all my life. Judah says, if we don't bring Benjamin back with us, our father is going to die. His love for Benjamin is the only thing that keeps him living. And Jacob is an old man at this point, right? He's a very old man. 
Judah says he, he won't be able to handle this. If we go back without Benjamin, our father dies, and I will have to carry the guilt and the weight of his death on my shoulders for the rest of my life. Now, if this was any other person besides Joseph, this speech might not have done anything, right? He might have just said, oh, well, not my problem. That's not my problem. But this is Joseph. This is Joseph who's hearing this. And at this point, there is no doubt that Joseph is already deeply moved as he listens to Judah talking about his father and and talking about all that the family has been through. And and, and even though Joseph is already moved likely with, with compassion towards Judah and his brothers, it's what Judah says next that convinces Joseph that Judah and his brothers have truly changed, that they have already confessed their guilt. They've already admitted, we are guilty men. We're guilty men. But what Judah says next convinces Joseph that there has been repentance. Because remember, repentance is a turning away from your behavior, right? Turning and going in a different direction. It's doing something different than what they did last time. Judah's brothers have not only confessed their guilt, they are repentant. Verse 33, now therefore, Please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord and let the boy go back with his brothers. Judah says, please let me take his place and let Benjamin go free. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. Brothers and sisters, Judah is a changed man, isn't he? This is not the same man that we encountered back in in chapter 37 when we began this series. In chapter 37 and 38 and and 39, the the whole beginning of this story, uh, Judah had turned his back on Joseph, right? He sold him for for a few pieces of, of silver. He didn't care at that time about his father either, did he? Did Judah care about his dad? No, he lied to his dad, showed him, a, showed him Joseph's coat and said, it looks like the animals must have devoured him. And he listened to his father cry himself to sleep every night, knowing full well that Joseph was alive. Judah didn't care about Joseph and he didn't care about his father. Judah, the same man that in chapter 38, we read about the sins that he was involved with, with Tamar and all of that story, Right? but Judah is not the same man that he was back then. Now, Judah expresses deep care and concern for Benjamin. He expresses deep care and concern for his father. And he's now willing, listen to this, he is willing to be a substitute for his brother Benjamin. He says, let his punishment fall on me. Let his punishment fall on me. Sound familiar? All through this series, we've been talking about the fact that, 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 that the life of Joseph is a foreshadow of the life of Christ, right? We see kinds, all kinds of foreshadowing of, of the, the coming Messiah in the life of Joseph. But here in chapter 44, it's not Joseph who's a foreshadow of the coming Messiah. It's Judah. Judah is a foreshadow of Jesus. You see, Jesus was a willing substitute for our sins, right? Second Corinthians chapter five, Paul says, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus was a willing substitute in our place for our sins. He suffered and he died in our place. And for the record, for the record, Jesus would eventually be born, not from the line of Joseph, but from the line of Judah right? So Judah willingly offers himself as a substitute for Benjamin. And this is more than Joseph can take. He's overwhelmed by what he's seeing. This is a transformed man standing in front of Joseph. His brothers have passed the test and Joseph is ready to be reconciled, truly restored into a relationship with his brothers. 
Chapter 45, verse 1. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood before him, by him. He cried, make everyone go out from me, so that no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. Joseph clears the room, right? He sends everybody out of the room, which, by the way, is an incredible act of, of mercy towards his brothers, right? It's a pretty good sign that you're ready to forgive someone when you have no longer any desire to humiliate them in front of others. When you no longer care about everybody knowing what they have done, all you care about is being restored into a relationship with them. Joseph doesn't care about the Egyptians knowing what's happened here. He has family business to take care of with his brothers, and it's between them. It has nothing to do with his steward, has nothing to do with these Egyptians, has everything to do with Joseph and his brothers, and that's who needs to be present in the room. Verse two says, he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it, and the household of Pharaoh heard it. This guy was wailing. He was crying. And then, listen, speaking to them now in Hebrew, Joseph is no longer talking to these guys through a translator. And as soon as he started to speak to them in Hebrew, they must have been shocked. Because this whole time, he's been speaking to them through translators up until this point. The translators are gone. Everybody's gone. Joseph looks at his brothers. And in verse 3, Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Whoa. Then he said, is my father still alive? Not your father anymore. My father is dad still alive? But look at this. But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. You think? You think? That is so putting it lightly. Joseph's brothers were stunned, right? They were speechless. Can you imagine all of the thoughts and, and the questions that would have been rushing through their minds in that moment when they hear the words in their native tongue, I am Joseph. How in the world can this be? We pulled him out of a pit and sold him as a slave. How is this even possible? Oh, no. Oh, no. What is he going to do to us? We are in so much trouble. They were scared. And they had every right to be scared, right? Now, before we continue, before we continue, we see what Joseph says next. I want to draw your attention to a small detail that's actually found in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 7. In Acts chapter 7, when, when Stephen, the first Christian martyr, is about to be stoned, he's about to be killed, he was speaking before the Jewish leaders, and he was retelling all of Israel's history, walking them through the history of the, of the Israelites. And in verse 12, he said this, when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our forefathers, these are the, the 12 tribes, right? He sent our forefathers on their first Visit, verse 13, on their second visit, Joseph told his brothers who he was. And here again, we see a foreshadow of Christ in the life of Joseph. You see, Joseph's brothers did not recognize him on their first visit, but on their second visit, they finally saw Joseph for who he truly is. And in the same way, in the same way, when Jesus came the first time, most of the Jews, his brothers, right, they did not recognize him as their Messiah, did they? But when Jesus returns, make no mistake, everyone will see him for who he truly is, the Messiah, the Son of God. In the Old Testament book of Zechariah, which was written about 500 years before Jesus was born. This is what the prophet wrote. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, who's talking? God, right? When they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, 
they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. And in Revelation chapter 1, verse 7, John writes this, Behold, he is coming with the, uh, with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. When Jesus comes the second time, everyone will see him for who he truly is, the Messiah, the Son of God. Amen? Amen. Well, Joseph's brothers, they're speechless. They're speechless. They're afraid. And so in verse 4, Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. Don't be scared. Don't be scared. Come close. And they came near. You picture the scene, right? Judah was already a little closer because he had approached Joseph to talk to him. Now the other brothers all come close to him. And he said to them, I am your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. Notice that Joseph is not denying what they did. You can't experience true reconciliation and, 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 and um, you know, restoration of a, of a broken relationship by, ni- by denying how people have wronged you. They wronged him. He acknowledges that here. I am your brother whom you sold into Egypt. And now, do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land for these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh. I'm one of Pharaoh's advisors and Lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Man, what is Joseph doing here? What's he doing? He is moving towards his brothers, right, in love, in love. Joseph loves these guys, doesn't he? He had already forgiven them long ago, and although he knew what they did was wrong, he also knew that God was in control. God is sovereign. God is in control of this. He says, you know, you, you did something evil, but God has turned it around and used it for good. Yeah, you sold me as a slave, and you think that you're the ones who sent me here, but you didn't send me here. God sent me here. Oh, man, if we could only learn to live like Joseph a little better, right? Every time we get a hangnail, we think the world is against us, and we don't realize that God might be doing something in the waiting. God might be doing something in us through the pain that we walk through. It doesn't make the pain easy. Do you think Joseph's walk was easy? Oh, man, he went through a lot right? Prisoner. And he was a, he was a, he was a slave in, in Potiphar's house and suffered accusations for something he didn't do. And wow, forgotten in prison by the, uh, by the, by the cupbearer, right? Man, Joseph went through a lot and it hurt. But he saw that God was actually the one behind it, doing something, accomplishing something in his life. And it was not just for him. It was for all of them, Right? Joseph is pursuing reconciliation with his brothers here. He's extending mercy towards them. He's showing them mercy by not punishing them as their sin deserved. You know the definition of mercy, right? Mercy is not getting what we deserve, right? I'm guilty. I deserve this. But mercy says, yeah, but we're not going to do that to you. They deserve punishment. He says, no, I'm going to give you mercy. But he doesn't stop there. He doesn't just stop with mercy. He's also going to extend grace. And grace is a little different, right? Grace is different than mercy. Mercy says you don't get what you deserve, uh, mercy. Grace says we're going to bless you with things you haven't earned. That's grace. I think sometimes we get those two you know, mixed, mixed up. 
Joseph is not only extending mercy, he's also extending grace. Verse nine, hurry, go up to my father and say to him, thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me and do not tarry. You will dwell in the land of Goshen and you shall be near me and you and your children and your children's children and your flocks and your herds and all that you have. There I will provide for you. For there are yet five years of famine to come so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. And now your eyes see and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see that it is my mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt and of all that you have seen. Hurry and bring my father down here. Joseph says, you got to go home and get dad. You got to tell him that I'm alive. You have to tell him what God has done. Can you believe this? I am, I'm Joseph. I'm the second most powerful man in all of Egypt. Can you believe what God has done? The Lord has blessed me and he did it in order for me to be a blessing to you and dad and your children and your grandchildren. God blessed me to be a blessing. I'm not gonna punish you. I'm not gonna punish you. I'm gonna provide for you is what Joseph says to his brothers. What an incredible act of grace. Are you ready to extend that type of blessing and favor to those who have hurt and wronged you? I can tell you that you can get to that point. You really can. If he did it once in the life of Joseph, that means that it can happen in your life too. Are you willing to trust God the way that Joseph trusted God? Because that's what it will take. Verse 14, then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and he wept. And Benjamin wept upon his neck and he kissed all his brothers and he wept upon them. And after that, his brothers talked with him. See, I told you to be hugging and kissing and weeping. And it's so much better than if they had gotten to a ring and duked it out, isn't it? What an amazing story. And boy, do they have a lot to talk about right? I mean, can you imagine all the catching up they have to do? I sometimes I see, I like haven't seen one of my friends for a year. And it's like, man, we, it's going to take us forever to catch up, right? So much has happened in the last year. They've got 22 years to catch up on. There's marriages and there's, there's children and there's probably grandchildren. And there's so much to talk about. This is one of the greatest stories of forgiveness, I believe, in all of scripture. It's amazing. It's an amazing picture of forgiveness, of mercy, of grace, and of reconciliation and restoration between people who had really been separated by incredible pains and hurts. For 22 years, Joseph's brothers have carried the guilt and shame for what they had done. And they'd done everything they could to keep their sin a secret, but now everything was out in the open, right? And they're now able to experience the freedom that comes from being forgiven. God used Joseph. Joseph was an incredible instrument of grace and mercy and forgiveness, to ministering to people who had, who had hurt him so deeply. But if that's all you hear, if all you hear is the story about the way God worked through Joseph's life, it's such a shame. It's such a shame because I think God wants more for you. I said it at the beginning, maybe you're somebody who's here and you need to experience forgiveness. You need to experience the forgiveness of God. You need to experience the forgiveness of, of a broken relationship. Maybe that's you. Or maybe you're somebody here who's been hurt and been wounded and it's time for you to be asking God to help me to forgive that person. That God may want to, to restore a relationship that's been broken in your life. And listen, you can only do one side of this, right? But are you willing to do your side? You may never be fully restored the way that they were. God had to work in both the brothers' lives and in Joseph's lives. It took 22 years for this to happen, 22 years. Are you willing to wait? Are you willing to prepare your heart for the possibility of restoration and reconciliation with those who have wronged you? I think that's what God wants for us to take away from this passage. Not just to hear a cool story about Joseph, but to actually apply it to our lives and play it out again and again and again. I heard a story this week about a, a relationship that was being restored and reconciled that I honestly, if I'm just being honest, I looked at it and I said, I don't think it's gonna happen. 
I don't think there's any hope. I don't think there's any hope for that. But praise God, somebody there had the faith of a Joseph, and it wasn't me. And God is doing an amazing work of reconciliation that I thought was never possible. Unbelievable. There's an old song we used to sing when I was a young boy in Sunday school, and the words of that song go like this. God forgave my sin in Jesus' name. I've been born again in Jesus' name. And in Jesus' name, I come to you to share his love as he told me to. He said, freely, freely, you have received. Freely, freely give. Go in my name, and because you believe, others will know that I live. We've been forgiven freely, and we are now ministers of reconciliation here on the earth, aren't we? It's amazing. We have an amazing story to take to people of forgiveness and reconciliation. It's an amazing privilege, and I hope that we take it and take advantage of it and become ministers of reconciliation to all of those we come in contact with. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the hope that we find that any relationship, any relationship can be restored. What an amazing miracle you performed in the lives of Joseph and his brothers. What an amazing miracle you've performed in our lives by reconciling us to yourself, that you sent your son Jesus to pay the price, to be the substitute for our sins and to reconcile us to you. And now you've given us this ministry of reconciliation to bring it to those who do not know you. And so, God, I do pray. I pray for those who are here today or those who might be listening at a later time. God, I pray that if they have never experienced your forgiveness, that today would be the day that they would cry out to you, confess their sins, turn from their sinful ways, and say, yes, thank you, Jesus, for forgiving me, and yes, I want to follow you the rest of my life. God, set them free from the weight of sin. And God, if, 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 if we have relationships that we need to pursue reconciliation, I pray, God, that you would work in our hearts. Help us to prepare. Help us to forgive and help us to be prepared for that time when we can be reconciled with them. Help us to do our part. I pray this in the powerful name of your son, Jesus, our Savior. Amen.